This episode of Madison Story Slam is sponsored by, as always, Ale Asylum, Oasis Spa and Salon, Zook Works, Text Tubs Tacos, and Marcus Promotions. Hello and welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. This is the seventh take that I've done in this intro. It is I, your friendly, incredible, amazing, if I do say so myself, host, Adam Rosted, here with stories from our September 2017 event. The theme was terminated. So there's a lot of great stories about, you know, maybe being fired or death or maybe in a, re- a relationship ending. I don't know. There's there, there's a lot of great stories that I don't want to bore you with all the details in this intro about. But what I do want to bore you with, or I don't know, maybe a better word is entice you with, is, you know, the week this comes out is October, like the third week of October. So October 21st, this Saturday, if you're listening to this when this first comes out. I'm sorry. You know, if you're listening to this a year later, this doesn't mean anything to you. But October 21st, 2017, this Saturday, is our next event. The theme then is Halloween, so you can come tell great stories about the times that you got, you know, full candy bars as a kid. Or maybe you threw pumpkins on somebody's house. Or you smashed mailboxes with a baseball bat. I, You know, whatever you did, we don't judge. You know, that's not our job here. We just want to hear your stories. Hey, but maybe you don't have a story to tell. I still encourage you to come to the Wilmar Center on Saturday, October 21st, to hear great stories about Halloween. And maybe you didn't know this. That night is the night of our annual costume contest. And the theme for the costume contest is film and television, so you can come dressed as your favorite TV or movie character, and it'll be great. That's really all I've got to say to you today. Uh, So, what do you say? Why don't we hear some amazing stories? So I've been moonlighting as a sandwich artist for about the past seven or eight years. And throughout that time, there have been a lot of really great people that I've met and opportunities that I've had, um, and also some days that were not so great. And I wanted to talk about one of those moments where um, a man came into the restaurant and didn't throw lettuce all over the floor or anything crazy like that, um, but grabbed a bag of chips and went to the cash register and asked to buy a bag of chips. Seemingly normal thing, right? Um, And as we were starting this transaction, he asked me, um, so have you played basketball? Which is like a totally normal question that I would have gotten. Um, I've gotten it many times, and so I'm very friendly. And I told him all about my history playing basketball for one year in middle school when I made one basket and um, really enjoyed the line drills more than actually playing basketball. So I ended up doing track, and that was much better for me. Um, And so we shared that moment, and we were starting to proceed with this transaction, and his total was $1.16, and okay, he hands me a 20, um, and so I start to give him his change, and he looks in the cash register and sees, oh, there's a 50 there, I want that 50, here, let me give you this, and then give me that 50, and oh, never mind, I don't want the 50, I want smaller bills, so let me give you this, and then you give me that, and... 
Then the transaction was over, and something about it was pretty unsettling to me. And so I was pretty new at the restaurant at the time, so I, and I remember being by myself. Maybe there was another person there, but um, I called the owner, and I said, you know, something just happened that didn't feel quite right. And he said, well, what's going on? And I said, well, a man came in to buy a bag of chips. And he said, fuck. <laughs> so I knew that wasn't good. Um, and he said, why don't you count the cash drawer and give me a call back? And so I did. And the cash drawer was short $70. And so I felt like an idiot because, um, number one, I'm not an idiot. But um, number two, how did that happen that this, um, what turned out to be a quick change scam artist, shorted us out of $70 through this very confusing, complicated transaction and swapping of bills. And um, I didn't even know that was a thing, that scam artists would do that sort of thing. Um, so I saw that as a real learning opportunity. I was not terminated from that position at the time, um, but rather learned a lot about warning signs of what to look for when someone approaches a cashier uh, or at a restaurant. And um, warning signs like, yeah, he kept his sunglasses on the whole time. Like, that's not as normal as you might think. And, um, and he distracted me with a question, like, how about that basketball experience, huh? And then um, totally took control of the situation when I was confused and distracted. Um, so the owner came in, the police came in, I gave my report, and I really wanted to share that with other um, coworkers and new staff to let them know, like, here's a thing to watch for, and it's really important to always be in control of the situation and really paying close attention to what's happening. Um, never thinking that I'd ever in my life have a chance to like, use these newfound skills of really how to be in control at the cash register. I don't know how much longer later it was, but I was working another shift and in walked a very familiar face. Right. And um, I was working with a, a high school student at the time who was pretty new and I said, Joe, why don't you come over here and help this family that I had been helping and I'll, I'll take care of this man at the register who walked in and just asked to buy a bag of chips. Um, and he was wearing the same terrible yellow jumpsuit that he was wearing before. He had the same sunglasses. But the part that made me the most frustrated was he looked right at me and said, you're pretty tall, have you ever played basketball? <laughs> I was shaking, I was so livid. And I don't think he realized that he had asked me that question before or that I associated that question with a particular thing in this context. Um, but I knew very well about what was going on and what could have been about to happen. So I ignored that question, and I probably seemed to the people around me like really not a very friendly person, but I totally dismissed the fact that he said anything to me about anything other than these chips. And so I said, okay, so you're asking to buy this bag of chips. Okay, so that's $1.16. And he hands me um, a $10 bill to pay for his purchase. And meanwhile, he's continuing to talk to me and ask me more questions, and I am ignoring all of it, and I very deliberately lay out the bills to make his change, and I close the cash register, and the transaction's over, and I said, there's your chips, have a nice day. Because meanwhile, at this point, like, he hasn't done anything wrong. I can't do anything other than just proceed with this transaction. Um, and he's not really satisfied with this for some reason. He wants to continue the conversation, and he said, oh, you... 
you said that I gave you a 10. No, 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 I gave you a five. You gave me too much change back. Let's open up the cash register and like make this right. And I said, no, you gave me this and I gave you that and you have the correct change. I'm very certain this transaction is over. And he continued to insist that he was needing to make more cash exchanges. Um, and I said, we are not a bank. We are not exchanging any more bills. Have a nice day. And again, this family watching this were like, oh, she's not the first. Like, customer service rating is not going to be real high on this one. But that was fine with me. Um, and, and then eventually he said, well, I don't even want these chips. I want a refund. Like, let's open that cash register. I want a refund. And I said, let me make sure I understand this. So you came here to buy a bag of chips. And I sold you that bag of chips. And I gave you your change, and now you're asking for a refund for these chips. And he said, yeah, yeah, give me a refund. I want my cash back. It's like, well, I'm not authorized to provide refunds, so let me get the manager on the phone, and we'll talk about this and what has happened um, and, and what he'd like to do about this. And so he said, no, 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 don't call anybody, because that's what I learned, too. Like, they don't like to have other people involved. They like to just be working with um, the poor victim at the cash register who they are working with. So... Um, so I went to the phone and I started dialing and he took a bit, his bag of chips and he left the restaurant and that was it. And so meanwhile, I was continuing to shake full of adrenaline of like, I, I think I just maybe prevented a robbery. I don't know, like I can't prove that, but it seems pretty clear to me that something could have gone really differently given my past experience of having been scammed before. Um, and so I told the coworker that I had kind of pushed aside. I was like, that's the guy. That's the guy I told you about in training. See, did you notice what happened here? And then um, there was another man waiting in line who probably worked at the Taco Bell down the street. He was like, so wait a minute. You're saying that they do this, this, and this, and then that, that, and that? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So I like to think that we were able to educate more people in the process, having observed this experience. Um, and I also like to think that his quick change scam artist um, spree was terminated. Thank you, Jessica. Um, one time when I was working at Jimmy John's, I, uh, there was a guy that came in, ordered a sandwich, and uh, we were making it. And the person who was wrapping the sub, uh, you know, you got gloves on and like you can't like touch your face or whatever with gloves on and then continue to make it. So he's wrapping the sub and he went like this real quick to like itch the side of his head, right? And the guy who ordered the sandwich was like, motherfucker, I saw you spit in my sandwich. <laughs> and this kid's name was Anthony. And Anthony was like, uh, no, nope, you didn't. And I was standing right next to Anthony. I was like, no, nah, uh-uh. And the guy's like, I saw him spit in the sandwich. I want my money back, and I want another sandwich for free. And I was like, no. And the manager, the acting manager, Casey, was also like, no. And then the guy goes, I'm from Chicago. And we were like. <laughs> and it just so happened that all three of us behind the counter had all been born in Chicago. So I at first went, I'm from Chicago too. And then Anthony was like, me too. And Casey's like, we were all born in Chicago. And he's, the guy started screaming at us. And I finally went like, hey man, listen, if you want to eat a submarine sandwich today, it's going to be this one. You're not getting your money back. Customers are the worst, right? Ugh. I've totally forgotten who's next. No, I haven't. Shauna, are you in here? 
You all right? Okay. So please put your hands together for Shana. Shauna's going the long way for some reason. <laughs> I haven't grown that far yet. Here we go. Is that better? A little high. I could stand on my toes though. Okay, that could be good. Thank you. You my girl. Blue. Awesome. Well, first off, before I actually get into my story, I want to take a moment and actually thank Adam for coming out and being here tonight, because what you just said uh, before the stories began was actually really touching and emotional, and, you know, it's, it takes a lot of guts and courage and just a lot of yourself to have those two weeks that he just had and still come out and be a part of this and still run this, and, I mean, everything that just happened in his life... That's a, that's a shitload. I mean, I know a lot of us in this room have been through things like that, and to still, you know, come here and run this and be a part of this and hold this, not just for the community, but for himself, too, that takes a lot. So let's just give Adam a round of applause real quick. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. And I forgot I got into a biking accident this weekend, so that really fucking hurt. Um... Well, my story actually kind of correlates a lot with what Adam and kind of is the repetition is. My first job 10 years ago, which kind of makes me nauseous thinking about that right now, was at a grocery store because that's everyone's first flipping job, either that or an ice cream parlor, which whichever one lost the game of not me, I don't want to take the 10-year-old person. Um, my first job was at a grocery store. So freaking fun. And of course, when you first get your job, your primary duties are bagging and then pushing the carts outside. But then at the same time, being a young person, I was in the midst of high school there, being a young person at your first job, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit this on myself. I don't know about you guys. I'm sure you're all much different than myself. I was an awful employee. And I'm not just meaning, oh, I'll come to work a little bit late sometimes, or, oh, I'll take a little bit of longer lunch break now and then. No, I fucking sucked as an employee. I was a piece of shit. Like, we had a large-ass grocery store, and whenever I'd get excited and see an employee or some customer that I knew, I would swear at them from across the room and be like, hey, bitch, what you doing today? Who fucking does that? Or my girlfriend at the time worked there. If you guys remember the Jerry Springer thing that I did, her and I worked together at this grocery store, and we didn't give a shit. We would bring all of our drama to work every single day. Not just our drama, but we'd be like, hey, we're 16 years old. We don't give a shit about anything. Let's make out in the ice cream aisle. What are we fucking thinking? Like, right now, I'm just like, good thoughts. But no, not when you're working and trying to hold down an actual job. So clearly, First job out of high school, I was a terrible ass employee, didn't really follow the standards. And not to mention, I had one of my supervisors there that just hated me. I mean, you can't blame her for everything, but I was also a really nice employee at the same time. Like, everybody loved me there. Like, the customers loved me. My coworkers loved me for the most part. Like, the other managers and supervisors loved me. But this tyrant flippin' hated me. Like, I won't give away names or anything, but we'll just call her Mendy. That doesn't rhyme with Wendy or anything like that. So her name is Mendy. But her and I just did not get along whatsoever. Like, whenever her and I would communicate, she would just stare at me with her hands on her hips like that and be like, Shauna, 
Stop doing what you're doing. Stop throwing cans of tomatoes at your coworkers. Put your shoes on. Stop making out with Jennifer in the dumpsters. And I'll be like, okay, Mendy. Keep yelling at me. I'll go make out with Jen in the bathroom, whatever. So like I said, my primary duties were bagging groceries, talking with the customers, and then my favorite thing was to push the carts. You guys are probably thinking, like, fucking pushing the carts. Nobody likes doing that shit. That's so miserable. You see people outside in the grocery stores doing it now, and they're just, like, trudging along, pushing, like, two carts at a time. But that was my jam. Because in the midst of high school, and even still now, I have a lot of just, like, really crazy energy, and I know I need to be alone when I'm doing stuff. So that was where I thrived. I'd be going outside like 10 carts at a time, just like zooming around, getting them inside. I'd be in and out, so efficient. Like this was where I was an amazing employee. I'd be doing high fives with everyone, with myself to congratulate myself. It was amazing. I couldn't go wrong there. It was the best part of my job, except in the dead heat of summer. Now imagine this, and I'm sure, like, I don't know how many people in here have actually worked in the grocery store and did the whole cart thing, but I was working right outside of Chicago, um, right outside of Chicago at this time. So imagine the temperature, the climate was pretty much the same as it is up here. And my uniform was pretty much that standard grocery store, any worker uniform. I was wearing, I don't know, this blue button-down collared shirt with, I don't know what that weird material is that's workers' materials, but it was thick and gross and stiff and then black worker pants, and I'm cheap, and I don't give a shit about fashion, so it was like the grossest, thickest material, so my whole outfit weighed like five pounds. So imagine it's like stupid humid, in the heat of summer, it's just sweating balls everywhere, and you're pushing carts day in and day out for hours on end. And I'm just trying to do my best, but I'm sweating so much, and so every minute of the day, I'm trying to get inside and snag some air conditioning, but I'm like, this isn't efficient, I'm not doing the best job, I don't like living like this, and this is miserable. Something needs to happen. So one day I'm working, and I come up with this idea. So I go over to Mendy, and I say, Mendy, you know, I'm trying to do my job out here, but this is really hard. What if, instead of wearing pants when I'm outside pushing carts, you'll let me and maybe all my other coworkers wear black shorts. Now, they don't have to be little short shorts and stuff like that. I can wear them to my knee, be gross, but their shorts give me a little bit of breeze so I can have a little bit more enjoyment at freedom pushing carts. Now, not a, not a second passes by that she responds just straight up, no. Like, straight up, no discussion about anything. She doesn't even, like, bother to say, maybe I can talk to upper management, maybe throw some words by corporate, nothing. And now, I'm going to admit this straight off. I have a hard time accepting, like, rules and listening to upper, like, authority. I just especially when they're not the ones doing the actual labor. I'm like, you're the ones dictating how I'm supposed to be running this shit, what I'm supposed to be doing this when you're not doing jack shit. It just pisses me off. But I'm an adult now, so I'm trying to like, like figure this out and not get in trouble about it, but I'm 16. So when Wendy just, Mendy, just said no. <laughs> Edit that out, Adam, goddamn. <laughs> to me, I'm standing there going, okay, I... I heard your words, but I'm not accepting that. So later on that day, I went home, and I have an older brother, and this might be some weird info, but I know he wears boxers. So I go to his bedroom, and this is even weirder info, 
But I go into his drawers and look in his boxers' underwears, and I take out his smallest pair, and I put them on, and then I put my work pants on over them. Check my fine self out in the mirror and say, this fits. Fast forward to the next shift I work at the grocery store. Wearing my pants, everything looks good. Check the schedule, next cart shift, I'm out there. But instead of immediately going to gather some carts and bringing them inside, I head straight for the back of the parking lot, take a little cart with me, wiggle out of my pants, throw them in the cart, and you can see me, I'm this tall. So the shirt kind of covers the majority of my body, but the boxers peek through. So it does look like I'm wearing something, but I'm free, ladies and gentlemen. My legs got that breeze. Pale, but breezy. So I start pushing carts, I gather them, and I'm gathering and I'm pushing like I have never gathered and pushed in the dead heat of winter be- or summer before. And there are freaking rainbows popping, unicorns are dancing, there's no one around, but there are freaking, there's clapping, there's laughter, everything is finally coming together. I am just on a roll, I am pushing carts in, out, I am the most efficient that I've been in so long. I'm going in, out, circling around the parking lot. This has been going on for like, I don't know, 20 minutes. I'm just having a ball. I'm feeling great. Everything is coming together. I take some carts. I turn around. I face the front of the store. There's Mendy. Staring right back at me. She's pissed. I push my carts to the side, and I start walking slowly to her. Now, I want to take a second and tell you guys how uncomfortable, freeing, and slightly confusing it is to approach your supervisor in nothing but your work shirt and your brother's miniature tiger boxers it is. I approach her and she just immediately tags me by the forearm and drags me inside, saying nothing. She leads me directly to the upstairs, and now, mind you, there's no easy way to get upstairs but to drag me through the whole entire grocery store because that's just the way to get upstairs. So the entire store is seeing me in my brother's boxers. So my manager is just dragging this half-naked crazy girl through the store. We get upstairs. She knocks viciously on the manager's door. He opens up, looks me up and down, and starts laughing. And Mendy's just standing there, pissed as shit, even more pissed as shit that this guy is laughing at me and her. And he sees her and gets like, oh shit, Mendy's kind of pissed right now. I think it's funny, of course. But then we all go and sit down at a table. And I'm sure I know what's coming at this point, but Mendy and him kind of have a little bit of discussion while I'm awkwardly sitting there half naked and styling boxers. And they bring up what my history has been like at the store so far, and they all kind of agree that maybe this isn't the best place that I should be working, and uh, let go that day, unfortunately, make my little walk of shame awkwardly out of a grocery store. That's not where you walk a shame out of. But it kind of brought things together that there was a little bit of humiliation in that moment, in that time, that it was, you know, thinking, it gave me a little bit of you know, I guess maturity, that I really thought in that moment when I, when Wendy, Wendy told me no, and I went home and said no to you. I learned a lesson in that moment. 
You gotta follow rules a little bit, Shauna. There are reasons people set things forward. There are reasons that people say things you can and cannot do, but maybe, just maybe, there are ways to work with things too. And I say that because, of course, months later, I eventually started going back to that grocery store as a shopper this time, and I eventually started noticing people pushing carts in shorts. <laughs> Bitches. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Up next, is, I th Kelsey, is it your first time telling a story? I don't know where you're at. Also, great, awesome. I meant to say awesome, not also. Awesome. So please put your hands together for Kelsey Peterson. I'm also very short. Um, so first of all, my husband would not be happy if I didn't correct that pronunciation of our last name. It's actually Pedersen, like pedophile. It's not Peterson. <laughs> I could have, but I didn't. All right. Um, as he said, this is my first time here and my first time doing anything like this, so here we go. Um, in 1998, uh, my dad left my mom for a man that he met on gay.com, uh, which is, was really shocking to all of us because gay.com is a website, apparently. <laughs> my dad came from a very Catholic family, and when he came out and divorced my mom, um, two of his six siblings completely stopped talking to him. Um, mostly because of the gay thing, obviously. Um, but they were actually really also upset about the divorce. They're very against uh, divorce. Um, but this story is not actually about the termination of my parents' marriage. Um, this is about the end of that hostility between my dad and his siblings, which came about uh, because of another termination, the death of their mother, my grandmother. So I'm starting to see some sad faces, but don't be sad because I didn't actually like my grandmother that much. <laughs> and don't feel too bad about that either because she actually didn't like me. Um, so it was really a two-way thing. We just didn't have a relationship. That just happens sometimes. Um, the word on the street was that she didn't like me because I had my mother's eyes. <laughs> which never really made sense to me because other than my eyes, I look exactly like my dad, I talk exactly like my dad, and has my, as my dad's uh, longtime partner has told me since I was nine, I swish my hips when I walk just like my dad. But that's not the point. The point is that um, one thing that my grandmother did enjoy, other than all of her other grandchildren who weren't me, was playing games. She loved games, she loved poker, she loved cards, cribbage, all the shit grandmothers like. So in the past, in the last few years of her life, uh, my dad taught her to play all of those things online, um, which was great um, for her. And w her favorite game to play online was Canasta. Um, I have no idea what Canasta is, uh, but she played it all the time and she came up with this canasta group, and they bonded. They played canasta a few times a week, um, 
it was old, other grandmothers from all across the country, a couple of them were, lived in California. She became good friends with these people. One day, when she was playing Canasta online, she did not take her turn, and her turn was timed, and her friends in California got super worried. So they called the police in Medford, Wisconsin, and I have to imagine that was a very awkward conversation, like, hey, Canasta Grammy 82 hasn't taken her turn. Uh, we don't know her name, we don't know where she lives, but could you maybe go check it out? So they did. And uh, they arrived, and my grandmother was um, unresponsive on the floor, and um, they attempted to do chest compressions, but it was really too late. Like, it, it was a lost cause at that point. Um, and it turned out that my grandmother had choked on an orange and died. It's not that sad. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, who chokes on an orange? If my, father, if my father was here, if my father was here, he would say, Kelsey... She didn't choke on an orange, she was choking on an orange, and then she had a heart attack and died. Okay, so directly or indirectly, the orange wedge led to her death, so my grandmother is now terminated, and my dad and his siblings, who don't talk, do the only thing that you can do when your grandmother chokes on an orange, and they have to plan the funeral and read the will and all that shit that you do when your mom dies. So they read read the will and all that stuff and how she wants to divide up her things and they realize that she left in her will a fucking game. This is how into games this woman was where all of the siblings were going to have this fake money and they were going to have to barter over all of her things. She knew that this was going to be difficult since many of them didn't talk. So she also left a letter that detailed how painful it was that they didn't talk anymore. She detailed um, that being gay is not a choice. Um, being gay was who my dad, Vern, was. And it pained her that they didn't talk to him because of that. So going into the funeral planning, they've read this letter, they've seen this game, and the, the negotiating starts right off the bat. They don't even need the game. They're into the funeral planning, and all of my dad and my dad and his siblings are negotiating with each other about whose children are going to be more involved in the funeral. So my dad ends up, I think probably because a bunch of his siblings felt guilty about this letter, my dad ends up winning the right to have me give the eulogy at my grandmother's funeral. Not the granddaughter who painted her nails every Sunday or like made her dinner every Friday. Me and my mother's eyes had to give the eulogy at the funeral. Uh, I didn't get to write the eulogy. Cousin Shelly got to do that. But I got to give the eulogy that Cousin Shelly was going to write. So we show up at the funeral a few days later, and we're sitting in the sixth pew, which was correspondent to birth order, which is ridiculous, and my dad liked to flaunt the whole gay slash divorce thing in everyone else's face, so he showed up in a bright yellow shirt with a blue tie, and my uh, stepdad, Larry, showed up in a bright blue shirt, yellow tie. My mom also sat in uh, our pew to really hang that divorce aspect over everyone. Um, super fun. Um, so I sit there clutching this eulogy and just reading it over and over, trying to memorize all of Cousin Shelley's words, getting ready. And my dad leans over to me. He can see that I'm stressed. And he says, hey, you're going to do great. I love you. Okay, great. Uh, but the competition 
goes on with these siblings because then my uncle Lynn, who hadn't talked to us in many years, leaned forward and said, Kelsey, you're going to do better than great. You're going to do fantastic. <laughs> so my dad, not to be outdone, is like, hey, I'm so proud of you. Like, I love you so much. And my uncle Lynn says, I'm so proud of you, but you know who would be the proudest? Is your grandmother. And I'm like, bullshit. <laughs> so I get up, I give this eulogy, I power through. Uh, my mother's eyes and I do a wonderful job. Very difficult, because I can hear the guttural sobs from my dad coming from the 6th pew. Um, and I come down from the eulogy, I made it through, I get down, and I, uh, my dad stands up and he hugs me and he says, thank you so much, that meant the world to me. And I immediately understood that it didn't matter if my grandmother was tumbling in her casket because I was giving the eulogy. I was actually doing it for my dad, um, because one thing that my grandmother and I had in common is that we love my dad more than anything in the world, and that love led me to give that eulogy, and that love led her to write a ridiculous letter reprimanding her children one last time, and then forcing them to rebuild their relationship by bartering over chicken pans and cow-shaped salt and pepper shakers. Thank you. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Kelsey, like the pedophile. Um, <laughs> Pedersen. Let's get on to our next story, which might be more happy sadness for all I know, but it's Zachary Shea, so please put your hands together for Zachary Shea. All right, that's way too much enthusiasm. <laughs> like before and after people listening to this in the podcast or whatever will be like, they clapped way too much at the start of that one. It wasn't that good. Like, I'm not going to beat grandma shenanigans. You should consider, like, set wherever you are, you should consider selling that to Greg Daniels or something, like a six-episode treatment. So, little prologue to this story, um, and Adam doesn't have to feel too bad for mentioning it, but at the last Story Slam I was at, I did mention that I had gotten fired from my job. And before this Story Slam season, I had been thinking that I tell a lot of really predictable stories. It's a lot of stuff about my sex life. I got to mix it up. And I was thinking about <laughs> telling this termination story, but I was like, not until I find a new job. And then I saw the theme terminated, and I was like, oh. <laughs> And I thought I could have gotten away with it, but I was talking with a group of friends, uh, and one of them was saying that they think they're going to come, but they don't know what story they would tell, and does anybody else have a story? And my girlfriend Hannah goes, Zach does. So I guess I'm telling this story. Um, it starts a little over two years ago. I'm living in Baltimore. I don't have a job. I didn't get fired. I had, my training was terminated. It was a sales associate position in air quotes. I was a salesman and the idea is they train you for like six weeks and if you don't make commission in those six weeks, they're not technically firing you because they never hired you. You were just training. <laughs> so they let me go and my girlfriend broke up with me, which was hard because she was hot. 
and she thought I was hot and I had kept the delusion going for a solid several months. But I'm in a place where I'm like, I can't justify living in Baltimore even though I love living in Baltimore. And my mother is like, the door is always open to you. You studied English and theater, I know you don't have any avenues, I've accepted it. <laughs> Just come home, I won't charge you rent. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I like Massachusetts, I like Boston, I could live there. And I start looking for jobs in the area, even while I'm still living in Baltimore for that first month, I'm applying to stuff in the Boston area. And I get this weird email from a company in Madison, Wisconsin saying they found my resume, they didn't say where, and I to this day don't know where, maybe Monster? I tried to avoid anyone who found my resume on Monster and proactively searched out me, because again, theater major, if someone's looking for me, they are desperate. There is, <laughs> there is no bar to entry. Uh, but it turns out to be legit. They interview me a couple times, then they fly me out here, which was weird, and my mom was like, you gonna get killed out there? Like, they're flying you out to Wisconsin? Some of you probably already know the employer I am talking about, but since I signed a sheet of paper at the beginning, I will refer to them as Schmepic. That's it. And during the interview, I have this really embarrassing moment where I, they ask me, how much would you need to make to get this job? And I say, and I thought about this for a long time, and I made what I thought at the time was a high end for, again, an English theater major, six months out of college, I was like 30,000 a year. <laughs> and they offered me 60000 a year, which is terrifying. <laughs> like, that was scary. I was like, I have never thought about that much money. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Luckily, my mom, boom, cloud of smoke into the room, was like, you're taking the job. <laughs> so now I'm moving to Wisconsin, a state I've never been to, to a city I had never heard of before that day. I know, the worst part too, when I first got here, I was like, eh. It gets better, it gets better, I promise. <laughs> but I move here, and I'm terrified. Like I said, this is a real job, and I'm not totally sure I'm an adult. I'm still not totally sure I'm an adult. I don't think I would qualify myself as an adult. I think I'd use the word boy to describe me. All right. <laughs> but everything's going okay. I'm making friends, and I actually really grow to like it here. I think it's great. And then I start getting actual work. This is the part of the story where I get to introduce you to my boss, Eric, who will be playing the role of guy I forgot to make up a name for. <laughs> And we have our first evaluation, and he 
throws me a bone at the beginning. He says, you're not doing below average at everything. <laughs> Which I thought was really nice of him. <laughs> he's, a, he's a nice guy. I would admit, we wouldn't be friends. I'm a bit more dorky than him, and his primary source of uh, nutrition was definitely the Kool-Aid, but... As far as people like that go, he was a pretty good boss, actually. He taught me a lot, if I'm being honest. But I'm getting these subpar evaluations, and, he's, and he doesn't say it, but I'm like, okay, I gotta step it up, or I'm in trouble. And, you know, like I said, it's a job that offered me more money than I'd ever thought of. I can't say no to anything, so the work just keeps piling up. I just keep saying yes to it. I'm gonna brag a lot, it sounds like, on this company. It's not the worst place in the world. It's not, there's a stigma out there. It's not the best place, it's not the worst place. Both are Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, depending on the position that you hold. <laughs> and Schmepic, like everywhere else, is somewhere in the middle. So I'm getting really overworked at this point, if I'm being totally honest. I'm letting myself get in over my head. I'm not good at asking for help, and I'm not good at saying no. And I'm pulling a lot of all-nighters about once a month, maybe a little more toward the end of it. There are two types of all-nighters I would pull, one where I literally just worked through the night, and the other one was what I called a traveling all-nighter, where I got to bike from the airport to Schmepic, which is a two-hour bike ride. And then around midnight, I would start my work, and by the morning, I would be enthusiastic because I am a loopy, tired person. And finally, and it, it, was, it wasn't the worst, it was like camping. I made myself a terrible dinner out of a frozen meal, it sucked. I was a mess in the morning, I hadn't showered. But I made it work until I couldn't make it work. And when I couldn't make it work, I finally talked to my boss. I was like, I pulled an all-nighter. And to my surprise and to his credit, he was really cool about it. He was worried for me, he talked to the people I was working with, and he wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing that again. The next week, I talked with my peers as well, they had a plan, to help me cope, and I had like an after-hours call with my boss. That was really great, and he still sounded even worried about me. I had not really felt that worried about in a while, and that was really cool. I fly back in, I don't pull an all-nighter, and when I get into work that Monday, I get an email from a woman I will call Gina, who is really high up in the company. Like, I, I wouldn't, I've never talked to this woman. I've seen her present things, but I've never talked to her. So I'm like, hey, this is weird. Did you mean to send this to me? And she goes, yes, just be there at that time, make it a priority, don't worry about it till you get there. It's still really weird. I'm talking to the people I work with. Uh, one woman I work with is like, ha ha, maybe she's gonna fire you. Ha ha, ha ha, ha 
so I go into this meeting room, and she's sitting down there, and she tells me to sit down, and she asks me how I'm doing, and she says, I'm going to cut straight to the chase. Do you remember what happened last Friday? And I go, I did. I pulled an all-nighter. I talked to Eric about that. I'm sorry if this is still concerning. And she goes, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? You pulled an all-nighter? And I go, yeah. She goes, whatever. You, early in the morning, went to the grab-and-go, like I usually do, grabbed a meal, and forgot to pay. <laughs> Let's get to the prologue later. This isn't that kind of meeting. We're going to let you go. You got two hours. Don't go to any meetings, but just, I will sit here with you, and you can send out any emails you need to, and then you have to leave. And I'm like, oh. So I'm frantically writing emails, because how, how do you break that to someone over email? Hey, I'm not coming to any more of my meetings today. I got fired. One. I think one response was great. Um, it was just three letters, W-A-T, period. <laughs> so I leave, and suddenly I didn't have a job. Got really quiet here. I was hoping this story would be funnier. <laughs> <laughs> the sort of epilogue to this story, I will get to you now that you've called yourself out. I'm doing all right. I'm still here. I still like it in Madison, and I'm still job searching. I was awarded unemployment, which is terrifying, because it's like this little ticking time bomb that will eventually go off, and then I will be broke. Um, but I'm really lucky, actually. I've got really great support from friends, from family, and to be a full cliche, the unemployed writer, I decided to start a blog, because like, whatever, go f <laughs> I don't care what other people think about me anymore, fuck it. And one of the, my posts makes it onto the Schmepic subreddit, which was a bizarre experience in itself, because I did have a bunch of people telling me that I was a hoax. And I was just like, sure. Um, I don't really know how to end the story because I still don't have a job and I was hoping that was how we would end that. I think the thing that stuck out to me when I was writing this down at before Story Slam, like what stuck out with me was that my, my boss, Eric, wasn't in the meeting where I got fired and he knew a week in advance. They knew, they just didn't tell me because I was on a trip. And the concern in his voice wasn't concern for me so much as he knew. I don't know, and I want to know. And I sent him a text when I got fired, and I said, I get it, we're cool, can we talk about it? And he never responded, and I kind of wish he did. Anyway, that's the end of my story. Sorry to end on a downer. <laughs> Thank you, Zachary. That's kind of the shitty things about termination. You know, like, uh, there's not necessarily closure in that. He didn't text you back. 
I, man, I get it too. I mean, I don't. I've never been fired over tortellini. Is that what it was? Your time is done. You're not on the mic anymore. (laughs) That is an epic story. You know what else is epic? Finding fun things to do in Madison. That's why I want to tell you about my friends at Marcus Promotions. Steve Marcus and his team offer a simple solution to the problem of being unaware of events in Madison. Through the Footlights program, Marcus Promotions connects showgoers from the theater with their community. Not just a traditional playbill, it includes event listings, restaurant guides, performance arts news, and even a sassy headshot or two. The team at Marcus Promotions serves businesses and nonprofits that want to connect with these audiences. American Family Dream Bank, UW Health's Carbone Cancer Center, and dozens more have utilized the publication to reach the philanthropic, the influential, and the affluent. Their playbills are personally handed to a captive audience that will see your ad when they open it. And when the curtain closes on another incredible performance, they'll know exactly where to go next. And they also support cool things like Madison Story Slam too. If you want to reach a bigger audience, maybe you're a performer or even a showgoer, visit www.footlights.com today and don't forget to sign up for the newsletter. Hey, we want to thank Marcus Promotions for helping us do a raffle this month and also for contributing to the prize for the costume contest winner of our October 21st Story Slam event at Wilmar Center. The theme for that story slam is Halloween. The theme for the costume contest is film and television. You can come dressed as your favorite character from film or TV, and you can enter for a chance to win a date night. Marcus Promotions gave us a generous gift of a few tickets to give away. Uh, uh, Two for the raffle prize, my mistake, and two for the uh, costume contest winner, along with those tickets... You are going to get a gift certificate from Oasis Spa and Salon, a dinner courtesy of Zook Works, a couple of margaritas from Tex Tub Tacos, and uh, it's going to be amazing. Maybe you're wondering what Zook Works is, and well, maybe you're having some trouble with your car. Zook Works is a new, small, fully insured, family owned auto shop on the east side of Madison focused on honest automotive repair and maintenance. The customer is number one at Zookworks, and the goal is to remove any negative preconceptions associated with taking your car to the shop. They believe that they can do this by providing an unmatched level of customer service, including honest prices, honest advice and recommendations, and personable communication. The shop is 1,900 square feet, fully heated, and contains two 9,000-pound automotive hoists. Hey, are you wondering how you can get a hold of Zookworks? Well, you can find them at www.zookworks.com. That's Z-U-K-E-W-E-R-K-S.com. You can also reach out at zookworks at gmail.com. Tell them the problems you're having and 
You know, my good friend Hawken, who I've known for damn near 20-some years, he'll get back to you and tell you what he can do for you, work out a good price with you. Find him on Facebook. Just search Zookworks. Thanks, everybody, for sponsoring our show today and helping us do some awesome prizes for our costume contest winner on October 21st at the Wilmar Center. Story Slam Halloween. Hey, what do you say? Let's get back to some stories. Uh, okay, so please put your hands together for Maria De La O. Yeah. Alrighty. So I was 15 years old. First boyfriend ever. Pretty big deal at that time, especially. You know, always pertaining to your specific circumstances. For me, I never thought that I would have a boyfriend because of something that happened to me in middle school that I had talked about a year ago on the Story Slam stage. I got sexually harassed by a lot of guys. I was the only girl in my grade at Catholic school who was not completely white, and the men there never let me forget that. And that led me to having an eating disorder and self-harming and feeling like I was completely undesirable, that nobody would ever like me. That's literally the thoughts I had. I was like, nobody will ever ask me out. Nobody will ever be with me. So at that time, when I was 15, I found out that somebody did like me. And he was the only guy who had ever admitted it. I literally thought there would be nobody else ever in the world who would. And I was very naive. So I agreed to go out with him. And I had never told anybody about my self-harming before, so this was one November day in my sophomore year, and we were talking on the phone, which we did every night, and I ended up spilling that to him, that I, what I had been doing in secret and what I had never had the nerve to tell anyone else, and he became very angry, and everything with him was like a contest where like I couldn't really talk about what was bothering me. He always had to, everything was about him. And that was, you know, the first sign that I had that this was a very abusive relationship. And it got worse with time, verbally and making threats. But at the time, he just flew into this rage, like over the phone, to the point where I thought I was going to have to go over to his apartment and and check on him, which I had done before because he would do things like this. He would fly into a rage. He would taunt me and try to, you know, get me to be angry at him and talk about all these other girls who are better than me. And then um, I would get angry about it. And when I got angry about it, he would threaten to kill himself. So I had, you know, ended up going over to his apartment a couple of times at night to check and make sure that he was alive because his parents, I didn't have their numbers. I didn't know what to do. So I ended up, you know, letting him know about this. And he flew into this rage next day at school in high school if y'all remember I think this is pretty universal sometimes like if something's going on that's like outside of the norm you start to hear about it before you see it so you're hearing like bubbling whispers you know throughout the day and I'm like hearing all these things and nobody will really look at me straight on and nobody's really telling me what's going on and finally out at lunchtime you know we had lunch together every day and we go outside um, like away from the school where we would always go he I saw what happened when I was waiting for him there. He comes up and he's got his sleeves rolled up and he's wearing the same sweatshirt that he always wears because he, I always say he was like, I want to say like Arthur, only in the sense that when, you know, like on TV when Arthur or any cartoon character opens up the closet, it's like 20 of the same sweater, 15 blue pants. That was this guy to a T. He would do that. So he's got like the same black hooded sweatshirt he always wears and he always, you know, had the sleeves down like a 
normal person. Um, and this one day, he was walking around the school, and this is where everybody was, you know, talking. He was walking around the school with the sleeves rolled up. And so when I saw that, like him coming in the distance to meet me, and then when he comes over, I see on his arms that there's these maroon lines, like perfectly even lines, like 15 of them down each arm. And I was just like, what the heck, like what happened? And he just looks at me with the deadest, coldest look in his eyes and he's like, well, you did this to yourself, so I have to do it to myself now. And it occurred to me that like, I, as you can tell, this isn't even like the, I don't know, the usual here. I usually wear a lot of bracelets and I always have. And it, it wasn't because I cut myself. I didn't do it to cover up the scars. I didn't want anyone to see them either, but I didn't do it. It was just really convenient that I also happened to like jewelry and I was like, oh cool, nobody will know. So it like, it, it worked out for me in that sense because I didn't want people to find out. And I just thought to myself like, he wanted everybody to see it. And then when people would ask him what that was, what were the scars, he'd say, oh my cat did it. And he didn't have a cat. And we all knew that. And I always remember that because it was like even the dark things that I was going through, it wasn't enough. He had to find some way to one-up me. And so like I said, it got worse with time, threats, and all that kind of thing. And that's where that part of the story ends. The epilogue to that is that about two, two years ago or a year and a half ago, I got a call from a friend and she told me that this boy, first boyfriend I ever had, had passed away. And he had, in fact, ended his own life. And it had actually happened about a year before I found out about it. And I found out the day that he died was March 30th of 2015. And I remembered that time in my life. And I was just thinking, like, you know, that was a time, one of my lowest times in my entire life. I didn't, I've never made a plan to kill myself, but I had thought about it many times. And that was something that happened to me on March 31st of that year that caused me to run outside of my place and run on the train tracks at four in the morning and for like two hours. And I was, so when I was told the date of his death, I, I remembered where I was at that you know, point in my life. And I thought the oddest feeling that I got from hearing about his death was this, this feeling of kinship. Like he was, he was my abuser. And yet I thought how strange it is that years later, I was feeling perhaps some of the same things that he was about completely different things, I'm sure. But during that time that he ended his life, I was thinking about how I wanted to end my life and how in spite of the differences, in spite of the the fact that I don't ever condone abuse, it was so strange that we were having these similar thoughts, even though we were away from each other. And I want to finish the story by saying that, you know, this was something I lived with for a long time. And when you have a relationship like that, because he did make a lot of threats, you know, he told me that I was worthless and that I should kill myself. And he was very, he was very tall, over six feet, and he took up boxing um, for some reason. And so I was literally afraid. Like I lived with this fear every day, every day of my life. It was a given in the back of my head when I woke up every morning. I thought, oh, and he could just come and, and murder me. Like he could kill me because I knew he was capable of it. And he talked about doing it. And he moved back to Madison to go to UW. And so just every day of my life, this fear, you know, and I still have the residual fear that's left over in my head every day. But that's when I have to remind myself every day when I wake up now is okay, he's not going to come and kill me today. And he can't because he's dead. And the only difference between us in that time was that I didn't make the final choice that he made, which was to kill himself. This like fine line of me deciding not to do it and realizing that every day is a choice to keep on living. And sometimes that's maybe the only choice that you feel like you can make at that time to not do that. But 
you know, my life isn't perfect. Uh, I've still got a lot I need to do, but at this point in my life, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm still afraid of men sometimes. I, I still am. I still have that fear with me, but I guess I don't have to be afraid of this man anymore. So when I do things just like go about my day and walk down the street in my own hometown, I guess I don't have to feel quite so afraid anymore. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Keep clapping for James. Hi, uh, my name is James. Uh, so, what's your name? Sorry, I didn't get that. Okay, very good. Hi. Now we're on a first name basis. That makes me feel a little more relaxed. So, um, I did, as Adam said, I got bumped the last time. And that was okay because I was pretty nervous. But anyway, so I'll, I'll tell the story this time. Um, the theme is not terminated. Uh, the theme last month was uh, the good, the bad, and the awkward. I'm going to take this down because it's a little too high. So I'm a little too short. Um, so the theme last month was the good, the bad, and the awkward. But I'm going to tell the story a little differently. I'm going to tell it as um, the bad, the good, and the awkward. So this is actually a baseball story, okay? This is actually a baseball story. And um, I'll tell you this here, so thank you. Um, this is a baseball story, sorry. Um, so about two years ago, I went to the Brewers game with my wife, and we were sitting in the first base side of the, the ball field, and we got some lousy tickets, but um, sure enough, a foul ball comes screaming right towards me. And if you've ever been a little kid and like baseball, the coolest thing in the world is go to a baseball game and catch a foul ball. So this ball comes screaming towards me, and I reach up and I grab it, and it bounces off my hand and falls down in front of me, two rows in front of me, and there are these two women sitting in front of me, and they don't know what's going on. They're not paying attention at all. So the ball bounces off the palm of my hand and lands behind the woman behind her back, between the chair and her back. And she's going like this. She goes, what's that? She looks around, and she finally realizes there's a baseball behind her back. So she picks it up, and she looks at it, and she goes, oh, how wonderful. She has a baseball. So remind, I'll remind you of the rules of etiquette in baseball games. If a ball comes towards you and you miss it, it's not your ball just because you touched it first. It's whoever picks it up afterwards, correct, right? That's, everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows that. So that's the bad, because you have your one chance in life to catch a foul ball at a Brewers game, and you miss it, bounces off your hand, and someone who's not even paying attention gets the ball, right? So that's the bad. So um, a couple weeks ago, my son, who lives in Massachusetts, comes to visit with his girlfriend. We don't see him very often. Jeremy, what do you want to do when you're here in Madison? He goes, well, let's go to a Brewers game. Great, we'll go to a Brewers game. So it's a Tuesday night, and we're walking to the stadium from the parking lot, and these little kids run by, and they're holding baseball mitts. And he goes, look at that. Those kids have baseball mitts. Isn't that cute? And I said, well, Jeremy, had I had a baseball mitt the last time I came, I would have caught that foul ball. So I tell him that story, how it bounces off my hand. The lady, paying, not paying attention, gets it. She's got the ball because that's the etiquette. So we're at the baseball game a couple weeks ago. Jeremy and Michaela and my wife were on the third base side. And I said, Denise, 
get tickets on the third base side because I'm much more likely to catch a foul ball. Sure, right? Okay. So sure enough, ninth inning, the Brewers are up 3-1 to one against the Pirates, no, the Cardinals, and there's two outs, right? Top of the ninth. Sure enough, a foul ball comes streaming right towards me, but, it's, but actually, it's a couple seats away. So this guy tries to grab it, and it bounces off his hand and rolls right towards me, and I pick it up. So I did, in fact, get a baseball, and there is proof, right, right there, that I caught a baseball at a Brewers game. So once-in-a-lifetime experience for me, too, but this time, that's the good because I actually got the baseball. And what does a good father do? He gives it to his son, of course, all right? So that's the bad and the good. Now, here's the awkward. About two years ago, Denise and I were at the La Fête de Marquette, which is a wonderful experience, and you're all familiar with that because I'm sure you've all been there, just down the street. And they have wonderful music, and every night they have a great show, and between acts, the volunteers will stand up on the stage, and they have these, like, bouncy balls, these, you know, they glow in the dark, and they're like 50 cents, you know, 20 cents or whatever, they're cheap. But they stand on the stage, they throw them out into the audience. And everybody thinks, oh, this is great, it's just like a baseball game. And they try and catch them and all that, and they bounce all over the place. So, sure enough, ball comes towards me, but actually a couple tables away. And this woman tries to grab it, and it hits her in the hand, and it bounces away, and I pick it up, right? Because the etiquette is, as you all know, it's not who touches it first, it's who picks it up. So she's sitting at a table with all these beers on it, and I'm like two tables down, and she shoots me this look like, like that. Like, like she obviously doesn't know the etiquette, right? <laughs> so she shoots me this look, and now this is part of the theme, actually. If I could be terminated, she would do it right then. <laughs> so she looks at me and she says, are you going to keep that? And I go, I look at this like, this piece of nothing, but she wants it so badly. So literally, I do this. So since we're talking about baseball, here's a peanut. I do this. I go, you want it? You can have it. And I throw it like that, and it bounces on the table, hits her beer like we're playing beer pong, hits her beer, <laughs> knocks it all over right into her lap, right? <laughs> so, so I told you the, the bad, I told you the good. That was the awkward, right? And that's my story. So, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. You win some, you lose some. Next up, we have Leah... Qu I'm sorry if I totally butcher your name. Leah Quandall. Give it up for Leah Quandall. sure what the exact equation is for parents, you know, moms and dads do to make Irish twins, but my parents came really close. Um, my brother and I are obnoxiously close in age. When I got rid of my training wheels, he got rid of his. When I got my first dirt bike, he got his. When I got my first mountain bike, he got his. I was pissed about the bikes, guys. I was pissed. Not only were we so close in age that we had to share a lot of things, 
that my parents just took one syllable of my name and changed it to create his damn name. So growing up, we were obnoxiously coined, well, we were named Leah and Levi, and I hated it, hated it. We had, um, you know, the normal sibling rivalry, but more than anything, he could always make me laugh harder than anybody. One day I came down the stairs, and he was jumping rope, living his best life, just jumping rope like a madman. Being his sister, I had to give him a hard time about his jump roping skills, and always good with a witty comeback. He started yelling, anything to win, anything to win. I died. So funny to me. So that became our chant. If we saw each other like slightly struggling with something, we would get up in each other's face and just yell, anything to win, anything to win. (laughs) If we saw our teacher like power walking down the sidewalk, we'd hang out the windows and yell, anything to win, anything to win. We'd come home and mom would like be struggling with a pickle jar, get up in her face and yell, anything to win, anything to win. So one day, I come down the stairs, and he is is always into his fitness. So I come down the stairs, and he's putting on weights, and I'm like, whoa, that's a lot of those weight thingies. And he's like, yeah, this is the most I've ever done. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) I'm the only one home. You cannot do that. You need to wait with those thingies. And he said, well, I'm doing it either way. If you're going to help me or not, you should probably spot me. My parents were nowhere near. They weren't going to be home anytime soon. He was going to do it anyway. So I attempt to spot him. He's doing really good, doing that fitness, really into it. Cannot fucking resist. Get in his face and yell, Anything to win! Anything to win! He... I start laughing. He starts laughing. We're both, like, gut laughing so hard. The bar just starts coming down, coming down, coming down, coming down. Coming down really hard. And then it's, like, down to the point where, like, he can't push it up. I can't really push it up. And we're just, like, laughing but scared and laughing but scared but, like... So I eventually get to one side and just kind of like, and he rolls out. Everything goes to the floor. Weight thingies everywhere. And we look at each other and we say, anything to win, anything to win. Um, Last month was the, we honored the ninth anniversary of my brother's death. And... I miss him like crazy. And anybody that's lost someone close to them, you know that you feel that your soul has been terminated when that happens. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Leah. 
Next up, we have Alicia Wright. So please clap for Alicia Wright. set up and I don't know how I feel about it. Um, okay, so my story is, I think I'm, is going to be short, but we'll see. Um, I'm terminating my time here in Madison, um, and I feel kind of sad about it, um, and I just wanted to come up and tell my last story um, here at Story Slam because Story Slam has been um, really important to me. Um, I've made some good friends here, um, and I've introduced some of my best friends to Story Slam, um, so that's been pretty cool. Um, whenever I've thought about the themes of Story Slam, I've always been like, okay, right away I think of how I have a story about an ex that fits perfectly. And then I'm like, I don't, I don't want to come up and talk about my exes. And I've done it once. Uh, I don't remember what the theme was, but I was lost in India, like finding myself after getting broken up with. Um, turns out, like, India is really important to me, and that's where I'm moving. Um, but within all of this moving over the last few weeks, um, I've been uncovering a lot of things. And unfortunately, the exes are here. So about, I guess, a week ago now, um, I moved out of my apartment, and now I'm staying with my best friend, Kat, um, who's being really wonderful and letting me stay in her basement. Um, but so I didn't know how much stuff I had. Um, Maybe that's a pattern when you're moving, but um, I haven't really lived in a place for as long as I've lived in Madison. It's been four years now. Um, it's just been a lot of moving around, uh, moving countries, moving states. Um, but, so I just didn't think I had that much stuff, um, but I did. And so I was like, okay, I'll sell some stuff, I'll give away some stuff. And that's when I started finding the weird things. Um, one thing, and uh, everyone's been commenting about the codes of the night, so I'll mask the names, and I'll even mask the thing. So we'll just call it a ukulele. Um, I went out with um, someone a few times. Um, we got to know each other. I'm just going to be real honest about this. It went nowhere. Nothing happened. We stayed friends, and I guess he continued to pine for me. And a few months later on my birthday, I get this ukulele. I've nev I don't play the ukulele. Um, I had one time mentioned I might want to learn how to play the ukulele, and now I had a ukulele. Um, I still have this instrument. Um, if you're musical and you want to buy an instrument from me, it's not a ukulele, but come talk to me. Um, so that was one thing. Then I left my apartment, um, and of course, my roommate is still there, and she's like, hey, you forgot few things. I was like, what, what did I forget? I, I, I know I got everything. What about the rollerblades? What? I don't rollerblade. Those are your rollerblades. I said, no, remember when so-and-so gave you rollerblades when he moved from Madison? I was like, no, because like, that's him. These are my feet. Oh, crap. We had the same shoe size. So I had decided I was going to take up rollerblading uh, after he had left and given me these rollerblades. If you want a pair of rollerblades, come see me. I'll, even, I'll give those free, because those are free anyways. Uh, then there was the huge boxes down 
in the basement that I had left there for months and months and just stopped thinking about the beer brewing kit and glass bottles, all almost 70 of them. Oh, and let's, not even a complete beer brewing kit, just pieces of it. Um, I've never brewed my own beer. I don't know the process. I don't even know what the stuff is. Um, but that was left behind again in a, an ex's move out of Madison. And then I got to thinking, okay, you know, I'm finding all this stuff, including like the boxes of letters and things that I tell my friends to burn and then I find in a box in the back of my closet that I also saved. Um, but I was thinking, you know, what are the good things about Madison that I really um, have enjoyed? Because I do really love Madison and um, it's kind of hitting me that I'm leaving and Story Slam has been one of them. And then I thought, how does Story Slam fit into these X's? And I realized how many times I have brought dates to this thing. <laughs> and I'm glad that I got past the point and I just started inviting friends. Um, but I have not been very successful with those dates that came to Story Slam. Um, I've been with others, so it's all good. Um, but thank you, Story Slam, for making them go away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You guys are so good about keeping that clapping going. <laughs> I'm in the kitchen trying to prep stuff for what we're doing. Uh, next up, we have Marge Flynn, so please clap for Marge Flynn. I'm only here due to peer pressure from my friends. Um, but um, the year was 1961 before most of you were born, and I was a sophomore at St. Francis Xavier Academy for Young Ladies. And I had been going to Catholic school since I was in kindergarten, and I was a very obedient child, terrified of nuns. Um, and most of them liked me. Um, I did well in school. But um, when I was a sophomore, Sister Aloysius, who was our geometry teacher, took a dislike to me, and I'm, I'm not sure why, but every day in geometry class, even though she would call on four or five students to come up to the blackboard and put their homework on the board. Um, she always called on me every single day. So I always did my homework. And the uh, girl who sat next to me depended on me to do it because she always copied my homework <laughs> before class. And, um, and for I, I don't even know why, but for some reason, one day, I forgot to do my geometry homework. So unusual, I usually did it first. I, I got to school, and um, 
I didn't realize until my friend said, where's your homework, um, that I didn't have it. And now, in Catholic school, in high school, in the five minutes between classes, you would, um, you'd have five minutes between classes, but then at the beginning of each class, you would start it with a prayer. And so I didn't have time to do my homework, but I knew that these random events would happen in Catholic school, like they'd all of a sudden interrupt class to do a fundraiser for some charity or mission, or there'd be something that would cause us all to have to go to the chapel and say a novena. So I was terrified of Sister Aloysius coming into class because I knew she'd call on me first to put my homework on the board, which I didn't have. And so in the prayer before class, I said, please God, let anything happen so she doesn't collect our geometry homework. No sooner was that thought in my mind than there was this horrible roar of an engine sound and an airplane came past our windows at window level and crashed several blocks away, terminating everyone on board. And I thought, God, I didn't mean that. Um, and needless to say, she did not collect the geometry homework. We all went to the chapel to pray for the victims of this plane crash. But for many years, I lived with that guilt, thinking that I had caused that crash. I'm over it now, but um, it was hard. Thank you. Thank you, Marge. Nobody piss off Marge tonight. So our next storyteller is somebody who has told many stories at Story Slam. And uh, he's been gone for like a year and a half, maybe two years even. One of my favorite stories that our next storyteller uh, told was about being at a, like a Catholic youth event in Washington, D.C. And he, and he talks about the glory of the Lord. And, and it, was it you or the girl that was vomiting into a... Yeah, the girl was like vomiting all over the place. It's a very funny story. You can find it on our podcast. Please give it up for James Farley. It should be good, right? Is that tall enough? Okay, okay cool. Uh, thanks, Adam. Um, I was thinking when I came in here, um, I'm, I'm really awkward, and Adam is always so nice. He remembered my name. Even um, it's the first time I've been here in months and months. Um, he remembered my name, and every interaction I've had with him is so awkward. And he's still so nice. So thanks, Adam. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm here to talk about the termination of two of two passions. Um, those those two passions were the passion that that I had to become a great poet, and the passion for the 1997 hit album Radiohead's OK Computer. 
Um, so junior in high school, the year is 2001. Um, I am a person who enjoys um, musical artists and very concentrated um, blocks. So the first two years of high school, I'm all counting crows all the time. Fake, fake, fake dreadlocks. I love them. Um, <laughs> after that, after that, I moved on to... <laughs> I, was, I was exposed to Radiohead, which is much better. Um, and so I started listening to them just obsessively. Um, so about eight months into my Radiohead phase, there was an assignment in English class that lined up perfectly with the um, like English literary journal that high schools put out every year of like their students like kind of okay writing. Um, so this, the, the assignment was to write a poem and then um, this poem had the potential to get put into the journal. So it's like, okay. So I wrote a really great poem about the duality of the nature of man. And it was, it was awesome. And I read it to a girl that I liked at the time. And I was met with silence over the phone. Um, so I decided it was a bad poem. And I threw it away. And I was sitting and thinking, who's good at poetry? Radiohead's good at poetry. Um, so I'm going to go to OK Computer, track seven, which is... Um, just like this really morose series of words that the singer for radio had just typed into like a Mac and then had it read back to him. And like there's these like dreadful tones in the back. And like I like my entertainment filled with dread. So this is a song I like. Um, so, so I was like, this, this poem's great. I'm just going to kind of get my inspiration from, from this poem that's been turned into a song. And the way that I got my inspiration was that I just kind of changed a few words in it. Um, I, I, I put my name at the top of it and I turned it in. Um, my English teacher was thrilled with the quality of my poem. Um, so much so that she had me read it in front of the English class. And I was like, oh, well, this is not something that usually happens to me. Um, so I read it and everyone was like, oh, that was, that was great. Um, so then, of course, because it was so good, it got put into the English Literary Journal. Um, so after it got published, other people like Radiohead too. So they went, they went to the teachers who ran the journal and told them about my, my, my indiscretion. Um, so one day in English class, um, uh, one of my classmates said, you have to go talk to Mrs. Hoffman. And it's like, okay, I, like it had been so long ago that I'd kind of forgotten um, what I'd done. So I went over and like Mrs. Hoffman, like, She's, she's in her mid-50s, and she has, like, red curly hair, and she, like, slams her hand on the, on the locker next to me, like, like in, like, kind of like a mob kind of way. Um, like, she's angry, and she's like, do you know what you did? And I'm like, no. And she's like, well, where did this poem come from? And I was like, I, I wrote it. Um, I didn't. Um, I didn't write it, and she knew that, um, which was the thing that she was kind of leading me into. Um, <laughs> so, so then the other teacher who runs the journal comes by with a book cart. Um, and Mrs. Hoffman is like, hey, this is the guy. So now I have a lady, her arm, um, a book cart, and then another lady. So there's no escape. Um, so, so this is really terrible. So I was like, well, OK, so just like reprint it without my poem. I'm like, no, that's not a thing you can do. Like, we already printed them. OK, well, then I'll just sit there and like rip out all the pages with my poem on them. Um, no, there's a poem on the other side, and it would mess up all the formatting. 
So there's like no way out of this predicament. And all day I'm telling my friends, like, I didn't feel like I plagiarized. I did plagiarize. Um, I, but I didn't feel like I did. And by the end of the day, they were just like, dude, you, you plagiarized. Um, so then I went home to my parents and told them what happened. And um, my mom was like, okay, well, show me what the original lyrics were. And, and, and bless my mom, she said, well, these have the word shit, and, and you would never write that word. Um, so, like, this was her case. This was her case in support of me. Um, and my dad just kind of left the room. Um, so, so what happened was I wrote, um, I wrote a letter of apology to, like, all of the people, because I was in an AP English class, so all of my classmates had been working on this journal, and I was, like, getting a lot of what I perceived to be side-eye. Um, <laughs> Which is understandable, but like no one, I grew up in uh, the Midwest, so no one ever confronted me about it, um, relying on my own Catholic guilt to punish me, um, which it has, because I haven't been able to listen to OK Computer in years as a result of this, because it just makes me feel bad. Um, so I guess the point of this is that um, you, should, you should just feel good about the things you can do, even if... A person who, like, you think you might be attracted to, it doesn't think it's that great. Because, like, you did it, and you tried real hard. Um, and, and don't commit plagiarism to learn that lesson. So, that's it. Yeah. Moss! I didn't think I'd be called up. I thought there was tons of other people ahead of me, so I just was like, okay, no worries. I'm not going to do it tonight. No big deal. Um, I've never done a story slam before. Um, I didn't even know what a story slam was. So um, if you guys could give me a little bit of forgiveness if it's not all put together and I'm a little nervous and all that. So I have two stories, and you guys get to choose which one you want. Then if it's not very good, it's your fault, not mine. Okay. So one, I have the termination of the Inferno nightclub story where I was eight months and three weeks pregnant the last night of the Inferno. There's that story. Or there's the story of I was an unemployment adjudicator. Um, so I used to hear all these stories of people losing their jobs. And then I got unemployed. And I lost my job. And I had to tell it to an unemployment adjudicator. Which story would you like to hear? Inferno. Inferno. Okay. So I used to go, if you guys don't know, some of you might know, some of you uh, might know. Uh, the Inferno is a really popular place in town, very comfortable place, uh, great community for people just to feel like they could have a little bit of an alter ego and a little leather and lace or whatever your fetish was, but it was a, it was a safe place. It didn't feel didn't feel scary or anything like that. So there's a community of people that would go there um, and start to know each other over the years. And um, I kind of got into it late in the scene in my 30s. Um, and then like a year after I started going, the place was going to shut down. And I was, I was pregnant. And I'm like, well, it's... so a lot of the pregnancy I didn't go because I just 
you don't really feel very attractive sometimes when you get middle to late pregnancy. You just don't feel comfortable. But I was like, I am going to go to this thing because I'm going to see this baby out. And I don't mean this baby out. I mean the inferno. I'm going to see him out, right? So I don't care if I'm eight months pregnant and, you know, I'm going to look sexy and I'm, my baby's going to be, how do you say this? She'll be as a fetus in the inferno so she can always say she was at the inferno, you know? And that happened to my other friend, too. He, so I'm like, yeah, this is going to happen. So we're there. We get in, and it's really, really hot. And I'm wearing this. I'm wearing this like kind of like a see-through top, and then you know I'm covered here. And by the way, you'd be surprised how many people like men have a fetish about pregnant women. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I didn't think I'd, I didn't think I'd experience that. But um, anyway, so the, the night was going on and the music was really loud. And I don't know if you guys have been there. It gets, it was really, there's not a lot of, there's no windows in there. So it was really, really hot. And let's see, when was this? This was the end of middle, beginning of May. But it was really, really hot inside. It's steamy, no ventilation in that place. Kind of glad it was torn down. <laughs> and um, I was... I couldn't handle it anymore. I just was feeling too, okay, I just need to get out of here. I need to take a cab home. My friends didn't want to go. So they helped me call a cab home. They were nice and saw me outside to come wait for my cab. And that was before the Uber days, or at least maybe I didn't know about Uber yet. So other people wanted to get in the cab too. And so I was like, okay, this is fine. So we all get in there and the two people are really, really drunk. And I'm, of course, I'm not drunk. I'm sitting there, but I'm not feeling good, man. I'm just like, don't talk to me. Yeah, just put the window down. I need to feel, because I'm starting to get nauseous. I don't know, just the end of pregnancy and plus the heat of the inferno. And this woman starts talking, and she just is so off, off her rocker drunk and just annoying and obnoxious, and I'm just sitting here trying to just, just ignore her. Meanwhile, I'm just getting this flood of nausea, and so I tell the driver, I don't feel so great. I need to pull over. He's like, what? What are you talking about? And I'm like, I don't, and so anyway, I end up, I end up puking in the car, and I'm like sitting here and then there's this woman next to me. Are you okay? Oh my God, what's happening? Are you okay? And then the driver is getting really upset. And he's, so he's getting angry with me. And I'm like, look, I didn't know it was going to, well, you should have told me that you were going to. And I'm like, well, I did. And it just came. I can't control this. So um, I ended up puking in the car. She starts getting angry at the driver. And she's getting belligerent. I thought she was going to start getting in a fight with this man. And I'm sitting here like... How weird is this that I've never vomited in a cab? There's two really drunk people in the car, and the pregnant woman is the one that ends up vomiting in this. <laughs> and, the, and the driver's mad at me, and then he's like, he's feeling divided. He's like, how can I be mad at a pregnant woman? So he drops these people off. I'm sitting there, and he goes, all right, well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to charge you for vomiting in my cab. I'm sitting here looking ahead at maternity leave. 
and the man I was with didn't have a well-paying job, and I'm sitting here thinking, great, so you're going to charge me $60 plus the cab ride plus the missed hour or whatever it was. So I said, look, why don't you drive me home? I have cleaning supplies in my house. I have a carpet cleaner, like just a little foam thing, and I have rags, and I promise I will do it, and I will clean it up, and I'm a good cleaner. Can you, can you just let me try? Because save me $60 here, I'm having maternity leave, blah, blah, blah. He's like, okay, well this might save me an hour of work as well too, so let's do this. So he drives me home, and I go inside, waddle inside, grab the carpet cleaner, grab the rags, come back in, and here I am laying my knees sitting there reaching into the bottom of the car, like cleaning out this at, what was it, like 2.30 in the morning. And uh, it worked. It got out. He was happy. I was happy. We went in, and four hours later, I gave birth. <laughs> so, yeah, so I kind of feel excited. And when I was on the, you know, that I could say I was there the last night of the inferno, I made it happen. And... Um, What's funny, too, is when I was inside dancing, my friend David, he looked at me and he goes, I know what you're doing. It's not going to work. I'm like, yes, it is. And it did. So anyway, that's my story. Thank you. Hey, that's it for this episode of Madison Story Slam. I trust that you had a wonderful time listening to some great stories told by the storytellers at our September 2017 event, Terminated. You know, on the last episode, I mistakenly told you that that was September's event. It was actually August. I apologize. Uh, But if you're actually mad about that, like maybe you should go see somebody because it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, It's a free podcast. You know, it's... uh, Yeah, why don't you settle down? I don't know. Hey, October 21st, Saturday, October 21st at the Wilmar Center. That's our next Story Slam event. The theme is Halloween. Doors are at 6. Stories start at 7 or around there. And it's our annual Halloween costume contest. The theme for the costume contest is film and television. So come dressed as your favorite character from a film or a TV show or whatever. You know, it's really just me and Ashley, my wife, who decide who wins. We've got tons of great prizes for the costume contest, you know, participants. We can't wait to give them to you. We can't wait to hear great stories on Saturday, October 21st. We've got so much in store this year. We're excited. We know you're excited. And, uh, that you know, that's really all I've got. I'm just kind of killing time until the music starts to fade and we do that thing. But here's one thing I'll tell you. I can't wait to see you next time on October 21st.